the phone rang and the prosperity ministry televangelist picked up the phone. His secretary told him he had the chairman of trustees on the line and he needed to speak to him as a matter of urgency regarding a matter of finance. His heart sunk into his very expensive crocodile shoes. He knew what this was about. For several weeks now, there had been rumours of fraud and of funds going missing. And he knew, in his heart of hearts, that his luck had finally run out. Sure enough, the chairman, con chairman confirmed that an investigation into his affairs was underway and that he was suspended with effect from today. What am I going to do now, he thought. I've never done a real job in my life. And anyway, no one will hire me after this comes to light. <laughs> There's no way I'm going on the dole. I need to find a way to buy long-term friends and allies. And so, he dreamt up his ultimate prosperity ministry scam. On his way out of the office for the last time, he obtained a copy of the church's donor ledger, which showed all those people who made regular payments in support of the church, in return for which they had their names embossed on the ends of a row of seats and a mention in the annual accounts. That evening, before the news of his suspension got out, he made calls to each person in turn, telling them that the church would not, after all, be expecting them to meet their commitment in full, but that instead they would still be honoured if they paid less than half of what they'd promised. But the trustees were watching closely and they saw everything that was going on. Their reaction, however, was the most surprising thing of all. They used his continuing dishonesty as an object lesson for the others in the church, saying, look at this man. If only he had been as diligent in winning souls for God as he has been in winning friends for himself, then he would have truly stored up an everlasting treasure, rather than the passing gains of the here and now. I suggested uh, previously that when we see the word kingdom, it's a little bit of an antiquated metaphor, because we don't have powerful kings and kingdoms quite so much in the modern world as you had in the ancient world, that it might be helpful to um, swap the word kingdom, which might not mean an awful lot to a lot of people, for the word revolution. So therefore, the kingdom of God becomes the revolution of God. The kingdom of heaven, the revolution of heaven. And I know that some of you find that a little bit hard to swallow and hard to use that word because very often revolutions are bloody and violent affairs with some group trying to uh, uh, overthrow a government, perhaps, for some regime change.
But the revolution of God, the revolution of heaven, is nothing like the revolutions that we are familiar with in our world. It's the very opposite. It's the very antithesis. It's a revolution of love that replaces hate in our world. It's a revolution of goodness which replaces evil. The kingdom of God or the revolution of God is a revolution that brings forgiveness in place of hostility and revenge. Compassion in the place of self-centeredness and hatred. The revolution of God is a little bit of heaven on earth. And Jesus taught his followers to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray those words, we are praying for God's revolution of goodness to come on planet earth. If you like a little bit more of heaven on earth just now. And this revolution comes about not by military force as other revolutions in the world, but this revolution comes uh, to be through prayer, through love for others, for turning the other cheek, through going the second mile, and th through doing to other people what you would have them do to you, and through suffering and death. So how did Jesus then communicate this message of the revolution of God? It was central to everything that he said. How did he communicate it? And the answer to that is he did that largely through parables. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, Matthew tells us that Jesus spoke, to, spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Well, I think Matthew's statement is a little bit of an exaggeration there, and it's an exaggeration for effect, because Jesus did say some other things without using parables. But nevertheless, he is making a very, very important point, that parables were the main way in which Jesus communicated his message of the kingdom or the revolution of God. Many of the parables of Jesus start with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, like a farmer who plants good seed in the field, like a mustard seed planted in the field, like uh, uh, the yeast a woman used in baking bread, that the kingdom of heaven is like a, a treasure that a man discovered hidden in the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls and like a fishing net and so forth. But the parable that we are going to be looking at together this morning in Luke chapter 16 doesn't mention the kingdom at all. It just starts with the words, there was a rich man. But as we are looking at this and studying this together, I want you to recognize, don't miss the fact that it is as much about the revolution of God, heaven's revolution coming to earth, as anything else that we've seen in this series so far. So, let's open our Bibles. Uh, if you've not brought a Bible this morning, we'll put the words on screen for you. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to him, What shall I do now? Himself, rather. What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. 
I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quite quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, maybe that isn't a word that you are familiar with or a word that you would use uh, very much in modern society. And many of the younger people, I'm sure that that's a word that you wouldn't use. So what is shrewd or shrewdly? What's, what's that mean? It means streetwise. So here, the master was commending the dishonest manager for being streetwise. The people of this world are more shrewd, streetwise, in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted... Sorry, I haven't moved it on, have I? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. But if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Okay. This story is very much about rogues and rascals. And we are told that the boss man in this story had entrusted his business to the manager. And as manager of the estate, he had the authority to uh, do business on behalf of his boss. It was a powerful, responsible position. It was probably a, a lucrative uh, position as well. So when the manager in Jesus' story was given the sack for allegedly um, wasting his master's goods, it was quite an awful predicament for him. He would come to ruin. Uh, it's doubtful that he would ever get a job again, especially since he was fired for mismanagement. You know, it's not a good thing to have on your CV, is it? So for this guy, the, the outlook was bleak. He couldn't see himself working as a manual uh, laborer. He might not have been a young man. And moving from uh, a respectable white-collar job to the rigors of 12-hour-a-day manual work laboring job would have been too much for him. He says here that uh, he was too ashamed to beg. There were no job seekers allowance. There was no universal credit. There was no welfare state. So what could he do? He had a plan. And his plan was that he'd get himself some influential friends. So when he lost his job, they would help him out. Great strategy. So he called in the debtors, those who owed his master money. He falsified the books. He drastically reduced their debts. One person, was, his debt was reduced by 50%, another by 20%. He 
he falsified the books and believed that he would be helped out by them when he was fired. Quid pro quo. Crafty plan. I suppose the, the guy was a little bit like these two characters. <laughs> a cross between those two, yeah? Del Boy Trotter and Arthur Daly. Arthur Daly. But as we read this story, th this guy was not the only rogue in the story. The debtors were crooks as well. Because they knew full well what he was doing wrong, but they happily went along with it. You don't hear them complaining to the manager saying, you, you can't reduce our bills. It's dishonest. You can't do that. We don't hear that in this story. I think as well that the, um, the business owner was a bit of a rogue. Instead of being shocked by what the manager had done, he actually commends him for being so streetwise. I'm sure he didn't enjoy being ripped off by this guy. But you know the saying, don't you? It takes one to know one. And I think that's very appropriate here. Because the, the boss recognized and appreciated how streetwise his manager was. And I don't think I'm too far off uh, course when I say that if the, the, the boss had been in the same set of circumstances, he would have done the same thing. Okay. That's the story. But many people have a problem with this story. And you might be among them this morning. And the problem is, was Jesus encouraging dishonesty? Was Jesus condoning, even endorsing what this man did? Because at face value, that is what appears to be happening. Okay, let me put the record straight. Jesus was not endorsing dishonesty at all. <coughs> Firstly, we need to recognize that uh, Jesus did not commend this man's actions. They were commended by the owner of the, state, of the estate. And what's more, we read in verse 8 um, that the boss and his manager are, are identified by Jesus in this story as unbelievers. Jesus speaks of them as being people of this world, in contrast to people of the light. And Jesus is merely describing how people of the world um, often think and act. He's not endorsing this man's actions at all. But it is, and neither is he suggesting that we, as followers of Jesus, as children of the light, that we should follow the guy's example. That's not what's being said. You see, it's possible to recognize the cleverness of a crime without approving of the crime itself. Does that make sense to you? You can appreciate some crime without actually approving of it. Let me give you an example of that. Um, when all our kids were living at home, uh, Julie and I were always the, the last to go to bed, the last to go upstairs at night. Uh, we then put the, the house alarms on, and uh, which not only warned us about possible intruders, but stopped our kids going back downstairs in the middle of the night and watching telly. But that never seemed to worry our oldest son, David, at the age of about 13, who, as I now understand it, regularly escaped in the middle of the night to meet his friends for whatever reason I have no idea I don't really want to know. 
And he did so each evening by opening his bedroom window, his upstairs bedroom window, clambering out of his window, cautiously descending down the roof of our garage onto a strategically positioned wheelie bin. <laughs> and then he was away. Now, we knew nothing at all about his actions until one night when the window in his room, because it had not been fastened correctly, blew open, made a noise and alerted us. So we rushed into his room and after the panic of thinking that someone had kidnapped our firstborn son, and then after roaming the streets for several hours in an attempt to find him, after all of that, I was, and I'm glad the children are out because I wouldn't say this when they were here, I was actually quite impressed. <laughs> his plan was ingenious. It, it, it took some bottle to try that out. <coughs> and I appreciate his craftiness. He still got grounded for a month, but that's, a, that's another story. If it was up to his mother, it would have been a year. <laughs> you see, the point that I'm making, it, it, it's possible to recognize the cleverness behind a crime without approving of the crime itself. And the boss man in Jesus' story commended his manager for being streetwise, but he, I, he didn't approve, I'm sure, of being ripped off. But our question this morning is, why does Jesus spend so much time telling us of the manager's strategy if we're not to follow him? And the answer, I believe, to that question is that Jesus is simply saying that people of the light can learn something, can learn things from people of this world. Now, Jesus is obviously not wishing us as his followers to follow this guy's example because we're being called to be people of truth and integrity, people of light, people who are trustworthy, people who are honest. Even so, there are some things, says Jesus, that we can learn from this man. In fact, there are many things that we can learn from people who are not believers in Christ. Sometimes they're followers of other religions. Let me give you some examples. Mahatma Gandhi is one of my heroes. He was the leader of the uh, Indian independence movements against British rule. What an amazing man he was. Absolutely amazing. Ten years ago, I had the, the privilege of uh, visiting his former residence in Mumbai, India. Incredibly wise man said such things as, live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. What a great saying. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Great. I'm sure we do that as Christians. One of my favorites, I've quoted this on many occasions, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. And I could go on and on and on talking about the wise statements of this guy. I love the story. One day, when he was getting onto uh, one of those great Indian trains and his shoe fell off onto the track. And uh, the person who was with him, his tra traveling companion, was amazed at what he saw next because he kicked his other shoe, shoe off and it, that fell on the track. And his traveling companion said, well, what are you doing? Why did you do that? He said, well, now the poor man who found, finds my first shoe will have a pair. <laughs> and you see, the stories are endless. And there are so many things that we can learn from his example, but I can't agree with all of his views. He was a Hindu, a man who could not accept the deity of Jesus. Another of my heroes is a young Muslim girl named Malala Yousafzai. 
a 20-year-old Pakistani girl who won the Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 17 for human rights advocacy and as an activist for female education. As an 11-year-old, she wrote a blog for the BBC on the Taliban, a regular blog. Amazing, amazing young lady who was such a threat to the Taliban that they hired a gunman to shoot her at the age of 15. Now, as much I can learn from her, but I would fundamentally disagree on many other things. She's a Muslim, I'm a Christian. Closer to home. A couple of ladies visit Julie uh, each month, and they've been doing this faithfully for many years now. They're Jehovah's Witnesses. And they, I suppose, are trying to convert Julie. It's not happened yet, is it? <laughs> and the reason that they call is to bring the, the latest uh, copy of the Watchtower. They're very nice people. They, uh, Julie, I know, has had many, many interesting chats with them about matters of faith. They're people who believe that they are serving God. They're committed to their cause. They are persevering. The magazine is as dull as Ditchwater, but that's another subject. They're, th they're theologically suspect. And Julie and I may disagree with them on all kinds of issues. But I would have absolutely no problem at all saying to my Christian friends, look and learn. I would have no problem at all saying that. Learn from their commitment. Learn from their endurance. We who claim to have the truth and salvation, but are we as committed to the cause as they appear to be. You see, the same thing, kind of thing is happening in this story. Jesus is not commanding us to act dishonestly uh, or that we should follow this man's example, but he is saying that we can learn from him and others like him. So what, what is it that we can learn then? Jesus is saying here that if the people of this world, those streetwise people, those people who are constantly on the alert looking for angles, surviving by their wits. If those people can use material wealth in order to prepare for their earthly future, why can't the children of light use their wealth, earthly wealth, to prepare for their eternal future? And that's the key point. Verse 9. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, I must say, I, I, I scratch my head a little bit with this verse, and I'm thinking, this is, this is a key, but it's a rather strange verse. What on earth can that possibly mean? What's all this about gaining friends for ourselves and being welcomed into heavenly dwellings? What's that all about? Okay. Let's make an attempt, at least, of trying to understand this. The manager knew that he was going to lose his job and therefore lose his worldly wealth. Similarly, there's coming a day when children of the light, believers, will lose our worldly wealth as well. It's either when Jesus comes back or when we pass on from this world. And then our wealth, irrespective of how much we've got in the bank or invested in property or in shares, will become redu redundant. As someone once said, there are no pockets on a shroud. Therefore, says Jesus, let us use 
what we've got wisely. Let us do that for the benefit of others. Let us invest our wealth wisely for God's kingdom, for his revolution of love on planet Earth, not in this temporary and insecure world. You see, we need to understand that we are not here on planet Earth forever, and that the best use of our wealth is to serve the purposes of God's kingdom, to help the gospel be declared in other lands, in feeding the poor, in supporting missionary work. And one day, says Jesus, that will reap its rewards. Just imagine being welcomed into heaven by those that you have served in Jesus' name on planet Earth. Not only those that you've met and maybe had the privilege and the pleasure to lead into faith in Christ, but others, other people that you've never met, people you don't know, people from other parts of the world, not only the UK, India, Nepal, Africa, other places, all because you chose to use your worldly wealth to support other Christians, share with them the gospel of Jesus. Rather than purchase a brand new car or an iPhone X or some other gadget that you have chosen to use your worldly wealth to save lives through baby feeding programs like sub-Saharan Africa or buying malaria nets or supporting a project that will rescue people from being trafficked in the sex industry. Imagine the scene on that day when you get into heaven and you receive from Jesus not only well done, good and faithful servant, but you will also have a welcome brother, welcome sister, let me introduce myself. You don't know me, but your generosity has enabled me to come to Christ. I was a person you fed and educated through those missionaries you supported and they told me about our Lord. Wow, wow. That is what Jesus appears to be saying and teaching here. Someone once wrote, When I enter that beautiful city and the saints all around me appear, I hope that someone will tell me it was you who invited me here. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And this whole sometimes, often, times confusing story is about one thing and one thing alone it's about the proper use of our worldly wealth and Jesus and you probably know this Jesus spoke more about money than he did about prayer and the reason for that is that money wealth it's not a bad thing it's neither good nor bad it's what we use it for is number one rival to God for the human devotion devotion of our hearts and then Jesus goes on in his teaching, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And when Jesus is speaking here of little things, what's he referring to? Well, we've got to keep this in context. He's referring to our finances, our money, the way that we give in order to touch the needs of others, whether locally through the mission of the church, the local church, or internationally through missions work or some other charity. And Jesus says that if we are faithful in these little things, we are providing evidence that we can be trusted with much, spiritual things. 
some Christians have great natural gifts and abilities, but they remain spiritual pygmies when they could be spiritual giants. And the reason for that is that they've not been able to win this particular battle. They sow sparingly instead of generously. They sow sparingly. They say that they trust God when they can't quite trust God enough with their wealth. It was the American evangelist Billy Graham who once said, if a person gets his attitude to money straight, then it helps to straighten out every other issue in his life. I tend to agree with that. Are we faithful in small things? Are we faithful in the way that we use our worldly wealth? Do we see ourselves as owners or do we see ourselves as stewards, managers of God's resources? Verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? I'm sure most of us today are are quite familiar with the, the term poverty trap, yes? Where a person is earning slightly too much for gaining state benefits, but too little to live on. The poverty trap. There's also something, the wealth trap. Have you heard of the wealth trap? Well, let me give you an idea of what the wealth trap is. The wealth trap is a little bit like a roundabout that is too difficult to get off. The more money that you have coming in entices a person perhaps into greater financial commitments. A bigger house, a better car, HB commitments of all sorts. A good wage doesn't come alone. It comes with more responsibility at work, less time with the family. When the chance of promotion comes along, it's easily sought after. The promotion releases the financial pressure for a time. Often more things are purchased on HP. But the promotion, due to increased responsibilities, crowds out other important things in our lives. Not only family, but God, spiritual life. Tommy Tenney, who once wrote a book entitled... Uh, God chases. He tells a story of his father. His father was a a national leader in the Pentecostal church in America. And uh, his father visited an Ethiopian pastor who had suffered greatly. And uh, his father knew of the sufferings and the horrible poverty of this man and uh, made the mistake of showing what he thought to be some kind of gracious sympathy to this Ethiopian pastor. And his father said, Uh, to this man, brother, we pray for you in your poverty. And this humble Ethiopian Ethiopian pastor said to his American friend, no, you don't understand. We pray for you in your prosperity. We pray for you Americans because it is much harder for you to live at the place God wants you to live in the midst of prosperity than for us in the midst of poverty. Wow. Wow. It's not just the Americans, is it? The greatest danger, I believe, to Christians not being fruitful is not us as Christians committing some grievous sin, but actually the greatest challenge and the greatest danger to not living a fruitful life for Jesus is the good things in life which often get in the way and they crowd out Jesus. There's a man in the New Testament named Demas 
You might not have come across him. There are only three verses referring to Demas in the New Testament. Let me put them on screen for you. The first is in Paul's letter to Colossians, chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul writes, Our dear friend Luke and Demas send their greetings. The second verse is in Paul's letter to Philemon, verse 24, where greetings are sent from Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. There is one further reference to Demas. So what do we know about him so far? He's a good friend. He's a fellow worker. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, which was Paul's last letter that he wrote in the New Testament, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. And I find those words incredibly sad. Such poignant words. A friend, a fellow worker, who became a, deser a deserter. And I'm sure that that didn't happen overnight. It was probably a slow downward slide that went unchecked. And people don't just fall away in a moment. Backsliding is a slide, not a drop. And I know that many of you were hugely encouraged um, a couple of weeks ago when Julie and I shared our 25th anniversary in this church and Dan and others put some videos together. And that was a great morning and thank you for everybody who was involved in that. But there was one video that Dan put together, which I, I know took him a long time. It was seven minutes long, and it was one baptism after another and after another and after another over the years. And by a long way, we didn't have all the people who were baptized included on that video. And I turned around and had a look at some of you, and uh, I noticed that some of you were getting your handkerchiefs out. And uh, it was a little bit too much to see all those people getting baptized very, very emotional, very inspiring. But that video, for me, had a bit of a double edge. You know, it inspired me, yes. But it also brought a measure of sadness, because I know full well that not everyone who was shown on that video is still following the faith that they publicly declared at their baptisms. And for many of them, their spiritual lives got choked with wrong priorities with the, the worries of life and with the deceit of wealth. Like Demas, they loved the world. Verse 13, we're nearly there. Jesus says, no servant, can, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the, and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And uh, somebody just defined money in this way definition of money here, an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. And then in verse 14, where we, we're coming into land, we have a comment here on the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus' teaching. We're told, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Can you just imagine in that scene, just picture that <coughs> these guys may not have been uh, part of the conversation, but they may have been in the background somewhere listening to what Jesus said, and they were sneering and sniggering and scoffing sarcastically, notice the alliteration there, uh, at the words of Jesus. This teaching was nonsense to them, absolute sheer nonsense. And I'm very aware that there may be some in this room this morning. 
You've heard the teaching of Jesus uh, on this subject, and you may feel a little bit like that. You enjoy coming to church. You always feel better leaving ready to take on the world than you do when you come in first thing in the morning. It's ready to face another week because you attended. You might love the music. You might love singing the songs. You might appreciate having the, the, the scriptural teaching explained to you in a way that you can understand. You might enjoy the stories and the anecdotes and the humor. You might be inspired by the community uh, from the church and the church's community outreach. But when you hear that kind of challenge that Jesus gave in this parable about using worldly wealth wisely in serving him and making a difference in this world, actually, you turn a bit of a deaf ear and harden your hearts. And I know that that is a real possibility because those that Jesus spoke to, not all of them had the same reaction to his parables. And I know that others of you in this place today, you have learned to hold your worldly wealth very lightly in your hands. You're quick to give. You're quick to bless others in Jesus' name. Through having the right attitude to worldly wealth, you have touched the lives of many people, locally and internationally. People whose lives have been changed by your giving. You're trustworthy in using your worldly wealth wisely, and you've been faithful in small things. And one day, says Jesus, you will be welcomed into heavenly places by those whose lives have been changed by the way that you have dealt with your worldly wealth. It's not an easy message, this, by the way. It's not an easy message. It's not an easy message to give, and probably it's not one to listen to. But my heart is for us to truly understand what Jesus is telling us, because what Jesus is telling us really matters. Absolutely. You know, the biggest spiritual battle I believe that you or I will ever face is not some extramarital affair. It is not pornographic images, which in our age of easy access is a great temptation to many. It's not fraud or theft or a number of other sins which are regarded as grievous. I think that the biggest battle is the battle over the way that we use our wealth, whether we see God as the owner of everything or whether we see ourselves as owners. And I'm just done. Let me just, one, one last word by saying to you that uh, the message this morning doesn't re require some kind of uh, knee-jerk response. I'm not going to ask anybody to come out for prayer. I'm not going to ask you to sign some check as I show you a photograph of some malnourished child with emotional music running in the background. I'm not going to do any of that. But I do believe with all of my heart that this message does require from all of us to this week, think through, pray through, and in your life groups as well, talk through what Jesus is teaching here for our own lives today. Let's pray together.